Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Mom. Hi, Mary. I called my mom the other day because I wanted to talk to her about this weird moment in my childhood. Um, so do you remember that diet you put us on back when I was like 11? Oh, yes, I do. I was a chubby kid back then before I hit my growth spurt. You had an appointment with your pediatrician and he reported that your cholesterol was high. So all of us went on the Pritikin diet, lots of fruits and vegetables and whole grains, My mom still remembers sending me to middle school with Tupperware containers full of udon noodles and seaweed. In 1988, that was not a cool lunch. You know what I remember? What? I remember those Pritikin books because they had on them in really large all caps font, no fat, no sugar, no salt, no eggs. And I just Mm. remember thinking, what am I going to (laughs) eat? It was very vegetable-based. There was just a lot of chopping going on. (laughs) (laughs) Pritikin is the only diet I've ever been on. But for my parents, it was just one of so many they've tried. Can you, like, tick off all the different diets you've done over the years? Oh, gosh. I wish I was at home because then I could read the spines of all the diet books that are sitting on a bookshelf because I was looking at them the other day. (laughs) (laughs) You were? (laughs) I really was. I was thinking, this is insane. I mean, the latest one to walk in the door, oh gosh, I wish I could remember the name of it. Well, there's one that's called the Maker's Diet, which is kind of a Christian-based diet. I picked up that diet book at the resale shop. I mean, Atkins, Pritikin. The latest one is, um, uh, well, there's the Paleo Diet. Oh, Dad started the Hollywood Diet. That was back in the 70s, and that was very fruit-oriented. I remember when we took a trip to California, and he was only eating uh, fruit, and uh, one day all he ate was one watermelon. (laughs) (laughs) I really think that watching my parents go from one crazy diet to another when I was a kid, it showed me that the science of what's good for us, it's always changing. But there has been this one basic bedrock rule of dieting, right? If you burn more than you eat you'll lose weight. And the way we measure what we take in, it's the calorie. But what if the calorie isn't all that trustworthy either? Cynthia Graber and Nicola Twilley have been looking into that. They're the co-hosts of Gastropod. It's a podcast about food, history, and science. I just want to know what made you curious about this in the first place. So I've actually been curious about this for years because I've seen family members and friends who are struggling with weight. This is Cynthia. They tried to cut calories, and they did what they thought they were supposed to do, and they just couldn't get the weight off. So I was thinking, is it really just a calorie? Is it really that simple, that calories in, calories out, that's the balance? So I started following the research over the years. For me, it's like I'm a compulsive label reader. And that's Nikki. So I'm the person turning around all the boxes at the supermarket. (laughs) I do that too. And the calorie is always, it's on every label. It's like this all-powerful number that defines food. And I realized, I don't know what it is. So we know a calorie is a unit of energy, right? I had to look it up to remind myself of the exact definition. It's actually the amount of energy it takes to raise the temperature of one gram of water by one degree Celsius. But Nikki's asking, what do we not know about the calorie? Is it the best way to measure what we eat? 
Today on Only Human, we team up with Gastropod to ask those questions. Cynthia and Nikki's investigation starts in a really important place, Beltsville, Maryland, where there's a lab that spends a lot of time studying the calorie. Here's Nikki Twilley again. We went down to this anonymous office building in the suburbs between Baltimore and D.C. It's a U.S. Department of Agriculture, like big research campus there. And part of the work they do is looking at calories, how many we burn when we're doing different things, how different foods change what we burn, all kinds of things like that. I have to say the intensity of the federal government's research into the calorie kind of surprised me. Like, here's one thing the USDA lab does. They bring in regular people and feed them a really precise diet, and then they put them in a room. It's actually a room that they make people live in for a day or two. You're completely shut in there. And so that way they can measure how many calories that you're burning, and it's called a calorimeter. So you live in it for a couple days? Yeah, you have to live in it for 24 to 48 hours. There's fluorescent lighting and vinyl tiles and white walls. It's kind of, it feels a little bit like a a low-security prison. And we should say it's small. I mean, it makes a Manhattan apartment look like a palace. And this guy, Bill Rumpler, actually showed you around. Cynthia, here you are getting a tour of the calorimeter. This is literally a walk-in cooler. We bought this from Norlake, which is a walk-in cooler company, yeah. Uh, Unlike a lot of them, they're nice and they're sealed fairly tight. So what goes on in this room? Like, what is it measuring? Well, so it's measuring how much energy you're using and then how much energy you're expending. They have sensors in the walls. The sensors measure movement and they measure oxygen and carbon dioxide. So they can literally tell how many calories we're burning. The lab is not just measuring how many calories the person is burning, but how many calories they're taking in, which is why another room is dedicated to painstaking food preparation. Dinner tonight is meatloaf, mashed potatoes, corn, a homemade brown bread. So, Nikki, you talked to David Baer, and he was actually in the research kitchen where they make all the food that they feed to folks who are in these boxes. Right. They prepare all the meals for the volunteers in the studies in a special research kitchen. And they're super, super, super specific about it. Um, You get a different amount of food exactly based on your gender and height and weight. So there's this whole room full of people. The kitchen is people in hairnets putting things on scales and then packaging it up. And it's amazing. I mean, we found it hysterical. If it's brown bread for dinner, you might get literally an extra crust just to make it the right number of calories for your height and weight. I saw them put half a waffle in a little baggie for somebody. And I mean, of course, at home, you would just eat the waffle. But for this, it has to be exactly the right amount of calories. That guy you heard who was listing off the night's menu, David Baer, he's a research physiologist. And lately, what he's been studying is how many calories we get from nuts. So they studied three different types of nuts. They first looked at pistachios, and then they looked at almonds, and most recently they looked at walnuts. So the question he's asking is how many of the calories that are in those nuts can we actually absorb? In the pistachio study, they found that we can absorb maybe 5 or 6% fewer calories than what are on the labels. For the almonds, they found that it's about 30% fewer calories than on the label. And in the most recent one, which was about walnuts, it was about 21%. So it's a huge difference. And it's really interesting because if you eat, you know, 100 calories of almonds, what it says is a 100-calorie pack, you're actually only taking in 70. David Baer thinks there's something about the internal structure of nuts that makes it hard for our digestive systems to get the calories out. On the one hand, this is great. When we eat nuts, we're getting fewer calories than we thought. But also, for me, this is strike one against the calorie. 
So the label says one thing, but the truth is something totally different. Exactly. Which is really hard for people who are trying to count calories. I mean, if you're saying, okay, well, I just had 100 calories of almonds, so I'm going to change something else, and you only had 70, I mean, how, how does that affect what you're trying to put together for your day's caloric intake? And it goes the other way, too, actually. So while we were studying this, we ended up talking to an anthropologist at Harvard called Richard Rangham. And he has studied ways in which cooking changes the structure of food, the internal structure of food, but in ways that make more calories available. And he has a kind of crazy story about how he got interested in calories. I was studying the feeding behavior of wild chimpanzees. And I tried to eat everything that chimpanzees ate. And I even tried to go for days at a time eating only what they ate. And I discovered that it left me incredibly hungry. It led me to the thinking that there's something very different about living as a wild animal eating raw foods and living as a human. And then I realized that every human eats their food cooked. So what does this mean? Well, cooking, it turns out, changes the structure of food. But no one had looked into whether changing the structure of the food changed how many calories we could get out of it. And Richard did. So they looked at starches, meat, and fats, and they found, as Nikki was saying, that cooking frees up significantly more calories than if you ate it raw. So for starch, it's about 40% more if you eat cooked sweet potatoes than raw. And in terms of meat, you know, you get about 20 to 30% more calories if you eat a well-done hamburger than if you eat a raw steak tartare. And we're not really sure with fat exactly what the numbers are, but it looks like from the early studies, it's kind of similar numbers. And the thing that's interesting about this, I thought, is, you know, this is normal cooking. This is just like what you might do at home. But food processing is like cooking on drugs. It's high heat, high pressure, you know, what it takes to make a Dorito and this extrusion and, you know, centrifuges and all of that. What's that doing to our food? Is that making even more calories available? Nobody knows. And Richard thinks that it might be. I mean, that's what's really fascinating, right? So he thinks that processed food actually might be more calorie-dense than we even realize. That's right. Just because the calories are more available to our bodies. So let's recap. USDA scientists have found that for some foods, like nuts, we absorb a lot fewer calories than the packaging would lead us to believe. Like I said, that's strike one against the calorie. But Richard Rangham, this anthropologist at Harvard, has been doing research showing that by cooking foods— and also maybe by processing them, we get more calories. That's strike two. And Cynthia Graber and Nikki Twilly say there's another thing we should know about that calorie. All of us process food differently. And some people get more calories from food than other people do. Yeah, it's true. You know, I think people think a lot that this is a genetic difference. And there are slight genetic differences among people, but it doesn't seem like that's the overall biggest impact. So you've probably heard each of us has a different group of microbes living in our gut. It's, it's as individual as a fingerprint. So you guys also talked to this guy, Peter Turnbaugh, who's a professor of microbiology and immunology at the University of California, San Francisco. And he's looking into how all of the microbes in our guts actually might change how we absorb calories. That concept of a calorie needs to not just take into account the absolute amount of energy that's possible to gain from a food, but also, you know, the variation between us in terms of how good our own body and our microbes are at liberating those calories. Okay, so I might be liberating more calories than you guys? Yeah, you know, remember, the microbes in our guts are as individual and unique as a fingerprint. And yours might be more efficient at getting calories out of food than mine. 
Peter and other scientists have done studies with specially bred mice that have no microbes in their guts. And they've taken um, microbe samples from the guts of human twins, one obese twin, one lean twin, put them in the mice. And then the mouse that has gut microbes from the obese twin, that mouse end up gaining more weight even when eating the same amount of food, exact same diet. Whoa. There's a couple other studies that we thought were absolutely fascinating. And one was on uh, risperidone. It's the active ingredient in Risperdal, the antipsychotic medicine that people say makes them gain a lot of weight. So the researchers were able to show that risperidone changed gut microbes in mice. And that made them gain like 10% of their body weight in two months, which researchers said that was similar to about a 30-pound weight gain in a year for an average human. And then there's one other one. There was a woman and she needed new gut microbes to kill an infection she had. It's called C. diff, and it's, uh, re- it was resistant to antibiotics. And um, Mary, I don't know, you may have heard of fecal transplants. It's a way of uh, changing the gut microbe community. I know it sounds a little gross. Yeah. But, <laughs> but she got a transplant from her overweight daughter, teenage daughter. And so this is, you know, it's just a case study of one person. But she gained 40 pounds. She was eating and exercising exactly the same, and the only thing that changed was her gut microbes. Hold it. So this woman gets... A transplant of microbes from her daughter. Yep. And her daughter is overweight. And then she becomes overweight. Exactly. You know, when the study was published, it was 40 pounds that she wasn't able to get off. Wow. What happened to her? Do we know? She did beat the infection is the good news. Okay, so even if the calorie counts on our food are exactly right, which we know they're probably not, chances are that the amount of calories each of us takes from that food varies potentially quite a lot, based on the kinds of bacteria living in our guts. And by my count, this is strike three against the calorie. So what do you guys think? Should we just get rid of the calorie altogether? That's what, that's what Nikki and I keep talking about. That is the, the really interesting question. I mean, I kind of, I, I'm, I'm more revolutionary than Cynthia on this. I'm like, it's broken. But I think, you know, our thought about this is, is it the most helpful way to measure food? Calories were invented in a totally different era in the 1800s and 1900s. And the the primary concern then is, like, people need to get fed. Are they getting enough food? Are they getting enough nutrition? Are they not starving? Today, for many of us, it's completely the opposite problem. We have too many calories. We have too much food. We have different health challenges. And so maybe the calorie was right for that era, but something else is right for this era. But I do want to point out... When we were talking to the researchers, they all came back to the fact that calories do matter. And and it really, it's a matter of physics. You know, if you're burning a certain amount and you want to lose weight, you have to take more in than you use up. It's still true. But the problem is that we don't really know how many we're taking in. It's really hard to be exact about it. It's almost impossible for someone to really count calories for themselves. And it's, it's almost more useful just as this relative measurement. So we don't know how many we're taking in. We don't know how many we're burning. But it's still the best we've got. Yeah, pretty much. Kind of. It's kind of depressing. (laughs) Cynthia Nikki, thank you so much for coming on and telling us more about the calorie. Great. Yeah, thank you. This is fun. Cynthia Graber and Nicola Twilley are the co-hosts of Gastropod. We have a link to their show on our website. Does this change the way you think about food or dieting? Tell us at onlyhuman.org or tweet us at onlyhuman. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, my podcasting friend from down the hall at WNYC, Manoush Somarodi, is going to tell us about a project she's working on. It's called Infomagical, and it's meant to help all of us deal with information overload. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. 
You're listening to Only Human. I'm Mary Harris, and I'm here with my friend Manoush Zomorodi. She hosts another WNYC podcast called Note to Self. And Manoush, you're here because you're working on this project called Infomagical. Yes. (laughs) You said it without laughing, Mary. I love saying it. It's just fun. (laughs) So it's all about getting your listeners to clear out their digital clutter. Why did you want to do this? What I had been hearing from my listeners over the last year was a lot of questions about information overload. This feeling of needing to stay up to date on everything, whether it's the presidential election or that latest Netflix movie, to be a normal, regular, relevant human being. Also, pressures at work, email inboxes, just crushing people. So you basically, like, you're going to help me with that anxiety I feel whenever I get a push notification? Yeah. Well, first of all, why are you still getting push notifications? Can we turn those off, Mary? But yes, that's precisely what Infomagical is there to do. Try to make information overload disappear and bring back what we're calling focus and the magic of clear thinking. We have to make it okay again in society to say, no, I didn't read that because I, I... I actually was doing something that matters to me. Okay, so Only Humans is a show about health and science, Mm -hmm. and you actually talked to a lot of scientists Mm -hmm. about this, about what information overload can do to your brain. And to kick things off, you actually got an MRI of your brain. What happened? Yeah, so an fMRI, so functional, so you could see actually things that were going on in my brain. We wanted to see, could we actually take a picture of what information overload looks like in your brain? So... We were in touch with Dr. Daphna Shahami. She is a neuroscientist at Columbia University, and she figured my hippocampus, the one that makes very purposeful decisions consciously, would be more tired at the end of the day. And it was. But here was the surprise, Mary. At the end of the day, the part of my brain that learns automatically, habitually, the striatum actually did better than expected. So the habit part sort of took over. And I asked her, I was like, well, so... Could we maybe say that that's why in the morning I actually read Twitter and click on links and take in the information, but by the end of the day, I find myself sort of mindlessly, pun intended, scrolling, 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 scrolling. And she's like, look, maybe you are just one brain. And in order for us to really know what was going on, we would have to do a major study. And she kind of thinks she wants to do this as a real study, which is super cool. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you're talking to someone who will literally be scrolling her phone on the couch and get a text from her husband like it's time for bed. (laughs) So, yes. (laughs) Right. I feel you. But also, I spoke to this consumer psychologist, uh, Dimitris Tsivrikos, at University College London. He estimates that we only take in 40 to 50 percent of the information that we consume. So why are we bothering to take in the other 50 percent is what I was wondering. Yeah, and you came up with a week of challenges to do this. Yes, we did. And so that brings us back to Infomagical. So the idea was we asked people to choose one goal for the week, one thing that they wanted the information they consumed that week to get them closer to. So, for example, be more creative, and you can define that however you like, or be more up-to-date on the news. And then every day we gave them sort of a behavioral twist, something that our psychologists and technologists had vetted that we wanted them to try. So another example was day one, we asked them not to multitask. We ask them to single task. It sounds like your project is really all about people standing up and just owning, like, my name's Mary and <laughs> I'm totally overloaded. Kinda. Anxiety is a big word that comes up with this. And, you know, I think that's why I love doing my show because I think that I'm so special and I have all these problems. And then I mention it out loud and everyone's like, <laughs> no. 
It's not just you. It's all of us. So it's it's frightening and heartwarming simultaneously. Well, and now you have these results from your listeners about how the challenges went for them. So what are we going to learn from that? So what we're asking them to do is at the end of every day, we're texting two questions. Were you successful in sticking to your information goal? And how overloaded do you feel right now? And so we hope to be able to quantify, does sticking to a goal change the way that you feel or learn or whatever you want to measure this? It can be, I've had a lot of people say, I want to be able to sleep again at night. I've had a lot of people say, I moved away from my family and I am just not in touch and I'm going to use the time I spend on the internet connecting to them. That is how I will measure success. All right. Manoush Samarodi, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, Mary Harris, I love seeing you. If any of this information overload stuff sounds familiar to you, you can take Manoush's challenges right now. All of the Infomagical magic is online at wnyc.org slash infomagical. And you can find this show at onlyhuman.org. Only Human is a production of WNYC Studios. Our team includes Paige Cowett, Amanda Aronchik, Elaine Chen, Julia Longoria, Kenny Malone, Molly Messick, Fred Mogul, and Ankita Rao. Our technical director is Michael Rayfield. Our executive producer is Lital Malad. Special thanks this week to Jillian Weinberger and Matt Fiddler. And to Eleni Murphy and Megan Kunane. Jim Schachter is the vice president for news at WNYC. I'm Mary Harris. Talk to you next week. Support for WNYC's health coverage and Only Human is provided by the Torina Endowment Fund, the Hearst Foundations, Jane and Gerald Catcher, the Iris and Junming Lee Foundation, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the Simons Foundation, the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, and the Winston Foundation.